As we prepare to read the scripture for today's message, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 19, it'll be the first 29 verses as we read it. I couldn't help but be reminded that it was Sir Walter Scott, the famous novelist, famous for Ivanhoe and such, that on his dying bed, he was known for his vast library of books, 10,000 plus volumes, and as he was dying, he said to his son, bring me the book. And his son said, dad, which book is it? He said, son, there is only one book. It is the Bible. And that's what we are reading from today. Starting in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early on, early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called a lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or any, anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me, you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, 
Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the only book. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that long read. Great word. Um, I think that uh, I don't. Obviously, I don't know if you've read this story before, if you've heard it before, if you have thoughts about this. But I hope that we can approach it freshly, like perhaps the first time, and look at the text for for what it says. Um, sometimes we we feel like we know what a text might say and we can read into it or we can carry previous baggage along with the text that may not be there. Um, it's interesting, we've, we've sometimes have heard things taught in the past, heard people give their, their understanding on whether or not it's so, and, and frankly, things could be very different. So we'll approach this freshly. Um, I think what we'll, we'll see here is a, is a great le- lesson uh, that Lot provides to us to remember today, and um, I think we, we would do well to remember from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that we have a more sure word. The verse reads like this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. As Pastor John Nicholas quoted this morning, there is but one book. We may have libraries and interesting other books, but there's one living word. There's one word that is the full revelation from God, everything that we need to know for life, for godliness, for reproof, for doctrine, and for training in righteousness. And that is the 66 books of your Bible. And it's interesting, sometimes we don't treat it as though it's a a lamp to your feet. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere very dark. I mean, actually very dark, not like here. We're full of light pollution. You go outside and you can frankly see just fine. But if you go into the woods or if you go somewhere that's far away from a city and and there's a a night where there's not a, a moon hung high in the sky, and you come to understand the not being able to see your hand in front of the face, you pay attention to a lamp, you pay attention to a flashlight, you pay attention to some kind of a light source, because you start to realize that you are, in fact, afraid of the dark. Most of us wouldn't admit it, but I would love to place you in the the downstairs of the church basement, turn off all the lights, and we'd watch your scared little face 
skimper across the basement downstairs. In fact, one night I remember watching John sprint through the basement, terrified, and made a little whimper, and he tripped and he fell, and then he realized I was there, and he gave me a hug, and he was fine. It's a true story. It can't be disproven. <laughs> Loves hugs, that John. Give him one after service today. But if we treated the word that intently, like a lamp to our feet, like people who are, who are desperate because we can't see, and we need the word to illuminate our lives. You ever have a friend who, no matter what situation you bring to them, they have some scriptural passage that just fits it so well? I am so encouraged by those kinds of people. Um, I am less so encouraged by people who feel like they have great advice for me. You know, oh, well, here's what I think you should do. Eh. But if you've got some life-giving truth from the word, it's incredible. And so I think we would do well as we study this story to remember Lot. There's a lesson here. And at the same time, also remember that Lot did not have the word that we have. He didn't have the same lamp to his feet that we have. We're in such an amazing time that we can survey from Genesis to Revelation, that we can survey all that God sees fit for us to know for life, godliness, reproof, doctrine, training, and correction in righteousness. We have all of it. We're in such a rich time. But as is true in rich, sometimes, we, sometimes we're, we're wasteful when we're rich. You know what I mean? You get a great deal on cereal, and, and all of a sudden your, your, your cabinets are full of 10 boxes of cereal. Now every meal becomes cereal. You just eat it because it's there, right? You come home, and the kids have like four half-eaten bowls of cereal with crusty spoons that are standing up on their end out of the bowl. We shouldn't be like that with the Word. We can't allow ourselves to be like that with the word. In fact, reminding ourselves that we can't allow that is important because we can slip. We can slip in seeing the word as a lamp to our feet. We can slip in prayer. And so that's the lesson in Lot is to remember that we do have this word of truth and we can understand God's desire for us in this life. Much better, in fact, than Lot could. And so we would do well to pay attention to the more sure word that is to be the lamp to our feet. That's the lesson of Lot. If you would look again, and we'll look at verses, um, I don't know, one and, one and two, maybe one. We'll see. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Boy, did he have a misunderstanding on how this was going to go down. Um, perhaps... Lot sitting at the gate in Sodom would imply that he had risen to status in the town. Certainly he's comfortable here, sitting in the gate, hanging out, seeing who comes in. Perhaps word came to him from Abraham that these guys were coming. We have two now, not three. 
angels like visited Abraham. There's been the whole conversation about number of righteous people in Sodom. Abraham wisely negotiated down fairly low for the righteous of Sodom. We can get a little bit of context on how Lot got here back in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, verses 7 through 13. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot looked up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is a little a little footnote, a little, little commentary in the passage. When, when given anywhere to go, you can imagine uh, Abram and Lot are standing there looking out over the ground. Lot looks to this wicked city and says, you know what? I'll go there. And that says something about Lot. That says something about the direction of his life. And that says something of the lesson of Lot as well for us. Perhaps as a, as a believer in the world, there are some things that, that you say, you know what? I don't do or go there. They may not be expressly sinful, but as for me and as for my house, we don't do that and we don't go there because I don't inch my way over to sin. I don't inch my way closer to a great fall. And those things may be completely fine. I know plenty of people that struggle in areas where I do not, and and there's seasons of your life that will change. I remember being a very zealous young believer who thought everyone with a Christmas tree was going to burn in hell. I still know that's true. Just kidding. You might not. I think we've got to give ourselves room and give people around us room sometimes to see the world differently than we do. There's some things that we say are, are doctrinal and they're important and there is no wavering and these exist in a closed fist. There are other issues that are in-house and there are other issues that are still secondary. So by, what I mean by in-house issues is there are some issues that we can have very interesting conversations about and good people can disagree and we're still believers. We still would say that these people are still believers. Some of our Presbyterian brethren would like to baptize your baby. We would suggest that the scriptures hold that someone should be baptized when they have a confession of the faith with their own mouth. That's an in-house issue 
right? These, these are okay issues. They cause very interesting conversations. They force us to really think about our theology. They force us to look at the word. They force us to dive in more deeply. And good brothers and sisters see the issue differently, and that's okay. These are in-house issues. However, when it has to do with issues of sin, when it has to do with issues of causing people to slip and fall, we should be very, very cautious. And that's part of the lesson of Lot as well. Because we have the more sure word, because we have a word that's lamped to our feet, one that Lot did not, we would do well to consider what the word says. We know that verse 13 of chapter 13 said that Sodom had a certain reputation. Lot wasn't picking a place that was neutral. He was picking a place that was known to be wicked, evil, and against anything of God. And we'll see that. I mean, John read of it already. We'll, we'll lean into that a little bit more. But this is where Lot wanted to be, near the fertile land, willing to compromise maybe for comfort. We see that Lot's a bit of a city guy. They're about to destroy the land. They're about to send him out of the city and save his life. And his concern is, but can't I go to one of the smaller cities? He didn't want to be too far from a Taco Bell or a shiny shell car wash of which there needs to be seven on every corner. Flirting with sin and temptation is a bad, bad thing for us. And, and sometimes some of the guardrails perhaps that you put up, I always laugh about the phrase guardrail. I was riding down the road the other day and it had a warning sign. It said, warning, no guardrails. And I'm thinking, are people relying on these things? Like I'm driving down the road and I'm like, we just burn your car against it, and that's how you know when you're in your lane. I, I prefer to think that if I go, you know, flipping and, and end over end over the road, maybe it stops me from coming onto oncoming traffic, but I don't need a warning that it's not there. I would prefer not to be rubbing against it. And the Christian life is like that as well, because when we're concentrating on something else, we tend towards drifting to that thing right? It's like when you're driving. I think I've said this before. I remember my mom telling me, you know, the thing that you look at is what you go towards in a car. You tend to drive towards what you're looking at. And so the Christian life is very similar. If we allow our affections and we allow our attentions to get drawn towards something else, something that's perhaps ungodly, something that maybe tends to take our affections away from God, it may be a neutral thing, but it may take our affections and our attentions away from the Creator. And those things for us are bad. That's not good for us to be drawn away from God. And so there are times in our lives where when we take our faith seriously, we're going to have things that we put up and we say, I don't do that thing. And perhaps you'll be mocked for that. Perhaps you'll be judged for that. Perhaps people will become angry at you for that. And that's just going to have to be okay. Look at a couple of verses since we say that this word is the only book. Since we say that this word is the lamp to our feet, we should flip the switch on and see the world through it. Let's look at James chapter 4. Love the book of James. Uh, and I would suggest to you this. Here's a great project. The book of James is entirely memorizable. You can memorize the entire book of James. Cool exercise if someone wanted to take it on. James in the fourth chapter, in the seventh verse, says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
You know, I think there are times where we, we give to Satan things that he doesn't have. We give him things that God has. What do I mean by that? I mean, there are things about God. God is everywhere at the same time, but no single place, right? He's omnipresent. He's at all places, effectively. Satan is not. He's not every, he doesn't have omnipresence. Same thing with omniscience, another 25-cent word, all-knowing, omniscient, knows everything. Satan does not. We forget that sometimes. Submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil, causes him then to flee from you. He can only put his attention so many places. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What if we did that? What if that was part of what we thought about on a daily basis? Have I submitted myself to God? What would change in your life if that was the case? Now, thinking to Lot, what if Lot woke up every morning and said, I'm submitting to God, I am fleeing, or excuse me, I am resisting the devil such that he would flee from me? What, what, What land would he have picked? Would he have said, you know what? I want to go to Sodom where the men are exceedingly wicked. It sounds like inching as close as possible to sinful temptation that Lot was doing. It doesn't, doesn't sound like submitting himself before God. It doesn't sound like resisting the devil, but what about us? It's so easy to read Lot and say, gosh, you're a heathen idiot. What is wrong with you? Why would you pick that town? And then after setting up your tent outside the town, why would you inch in? And then why would you become a fabric of the town? Why would you allow your daughters to marry men from this town that says they're exceedingly wicked? It's not submitting before God. It's not resisting the devil. And guess what? Read that from the negative. If you're not submitting yourself to God, if you're not resisting the devil, guess what he does not do? He does not flee from you. The question then in the story of Lot is, did he consider God at all? In, in any of this, is he considering God? It, sound, it would seem to me he considers fertile ground. It would seem to me he considers the, the niceties of living in a city, having quick and easy access to things. That was what was more important. Am I saying there's anything wrong with cities? Yes, of course, they're horrible places. But in all seriousness, I, I don't, I mean, I do mean that, but that's just a personal thing. I don't like cities. Even this is a bit too big for me. I would be happy to live in the woods and be weird. So I'm just missing on one of those right now. If he had submitted himself to God and resisted the devil, I wonder when he's standing there with Abram and they're looking out over the land, would Sodom have looked so good to him? If he was fully submitted, if he was fully resistant, is that what he would have picked? an area where the men are known to be exceedingly wicked. Let's continue with the, our lamp shined on the ground. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. Love this passage. These are, these are the kinds of passages when you say the word is a lamp to your feet. These are instructive passages. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord 
from a pure heart. This passage is oftentimes why I have a a, a lot of patience with people who see things a little bit more legalistically than I do. Um, I want to provide, you know, friction for folks, but I also appreciate someone who is fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness. Again, what if we did that? What What if we were found in pursuit of righteousness? I think we're always in pursuit of something. There's something about being a person. We're always driven. We're always after something. Maybe it's you're, you're in the middle of binging something on Netflix, and so what you're after is being able to sit down and open your mouth because you're a mouth breather and watch the next one hour of Netflix until finally it says, are you still watching? Because even Netflix can't believe you're still going. I've heard this happens. I've not experienced it. And you push the button that says yes, and don't ask me again. I'll be here all night. Flee youthful passions. Let me ask, what do you think that looks like? What does it look like to flee a youthful passion as a believer? What about youthful passions themselves? What does that look like? And not generally, and not for the person to your left or to your right, but I mean you. Really important in the scripture to read our own mail. It's going to be different for you. Chances are you probably don't want to project around the room what your youthful passions are that ought to be fleed. This is questions that the believer should ponder and pray through. These aren't quick read passages. If, you, if, if we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 and we read, So flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart and say, Okay, cool, let me do that. That requires deep, deep thought. That requires reflection. That requires purposeful direction. You don't just list towards fleeing youthful passion and pursuing righteousness. This is active stuff. This is effort. This takes energy. But the end and the aim of obedience and the sovereign God is worth it. So worth it. And if you think about the, this, this earth is where moth and rust destroy. The this, this, this stuff of this life is dross. It's, it's filth. What is fleeing? And what are youthful passions? Will, will, we, will we pray for those things? Will we think about those things? Will we allow the light of the world, word to shine on the ground in front of us? Because if it doesn't, it's not very good at all. Maybe some of you have had the the displeasure of helping your grandfather or your dad maybe work on a car and they need a flashlight shined on something specific. And, And if you have, you already know what I'm saying because here's the fact. You cannot shine that flashlight in the right place. No matter what you do, that flashlight will be in the wrong place. And you're thinking, I'm shining it right where you told me to shine it on the thing that you're working on. It's like my grandfather. He would tell me where things were, and I'm like, ah, I, don't, I wish we didn't have to play this game. I need you to go down yonder and get me the... Nothing had a real name. It was names he made up in his head, and you should know them. Not only that, you should know where yonder is. These are unknowable things. You can't know what this mystery object is, and you can't know where yonder are because they're not things. But the word, 
which is a light to our path, is entirely knowable. It's designed for us to know. It's an accommodation. It tells through stories of people's lives. And if you don't identify with this person, it talks through a story of another kind of a person. The word is incredible. It's living. It's a two-edged sword that cuts to the division between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It plums the depths of who you are and gets to places that you didn't even know exist. But you have to spend time with it. You have to treat it like it's the more sure word. It's not magic. It's not osmosis. You don't just wake up, press it into your forehead for a few seconds while you're scrolling through Twitter and expect to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to hide it away in your heart that you might not sin against God. You have to pray through it. You have to ponder over it. You have to labor with it. I think that we've bought this lie that the Christian life is going to be easy, right? It's just some goofball on the radio that wants you to tell them your funny kitten stories. And now you've done the hard work and labor of Christendom because of K-love. If I could go back in time and shut things down, one would be K-love and the other would be the flathead screw. We would jump straight to the Phillips. I mean, why would you design something that's made to slip off? I don't, I don't get it. And so part of the lesson of Lot is to be appreciative that we have a more sure word, that we have the full revelation. This is everything that God wanted us to know. If if, if we had this thing that was everything the creator wanted us to know about life, godliness, and about ourselves, wouldn't we labor through it? Wouldn't we spend time in it? Wouldn't we want to know it front to back, back to front? Because we do, and we should. We do have the full revelation. That's what this is. And we should spend time. We should labor. We should toil over it. So that we cannot learn lessons like Lot. I don't know about you, but my entire life has been hard-headed lessons learned. And I do not want to continue to learn that way. I'd like some soft-handed lessons, you know, like an easy glove. Just tell me and I'll listen now, okay? I've learned the hard way long enough. You just tell me and I'm all ears. And if you know me, you know that's true. You bring me some kind of a correction, I immediately accept it. Thank you for telling me that is generally what I say. Before we move on past the lamp and how that could have assisted Lot and how it should assist us, we're going to leave with a proverb. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go onto it. Turn away and pass from it. Boy, we would do well to do that. Um, I think some of us think if I could come alongside this person in their sin, perhaps participate, maybe assimilate, become just like them, And as we're going along, I will correct them. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Maybe another thing to consider would be, well, what is the path of the wicked, and what would it mean for me to enter that? Because Proverbs say, do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Just in case 
You weren't exactly sure what to do. It says, don't enter the path. Don't even walk on it. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. It's pretty insistent that you should really have no part to do with this path. Not going, not walking. Not e- don't even look. Just turn around. Don't even look at it. Now think about Lot choosing this city of exceedingly great sin. What if he had had this more sure word? The two angels came into Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting at the gate. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. He clearly knows that these these are uh, at least incredibly important people, if not angelic beings. My lords, please return aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we're going to spend the night in the town square. Now pause before we hit verse 3. These guys know exactly what's going to happen. So this is an interesting opportunity to gauge Lot's reaction. Don't forget the conversation between uh, Abram and the Lord about whether or not there was one righteous. This is a a winnowing, if you will. This is a, a sorting. This is a find out if he's righteous moment. Verse three, but he pressed them strongly. He knows the city he's in. <laughs> Let these, these guys sleep downtown at night. You, you guys really have to come to my house. All right, I'm going to have to really insist that you're going to come in the house and you're going to spend the night at my place. I do not want you spending the night downtown in my town. He pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he made them a feast and he baked unleavened bread and they ate. Remember the revelation of Genesis 13, 13. It is no secret what this town is. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I mean, can you imagine being described in that way? Oh, what is that town like? Well, it is exceedingly wicked, and the men are great sinners against the Lord. It's not like some kind of like, like all sin is against God. It's not like it says, well, they kind of, they're sinful. It says they're sinners against the Lord. They are egregious. If there is something that God wants, they desire the other thing. Now, we would do well to remember Without Christ, that is us. We tend to think of sin in terms of gradation, and we tend to think of that gradation as starting from us and then looking to see who's worse. And somehow we're always able to find someone worse, right? Um, and, And that begins to come up with some kind of a legalistic mindset. Like, we can do works that make us good enough for God. And as long as there's some people that are kind of under us, you know, he's going to get to a vetting and he's going to say, well, I'm kind of a 50-50 kind of a guy. And so these guys are pretty bad, but uh, this guy over here, he's okay. He's not so bad, right? He made sandwiches for homeless people one time. I saw him do that. That was nice. Not particularly good sandwiches, but sandwiches indeed. It's a dangerous road to go down. It's, it's much better to remember that any sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. And that's why we're so thankful for Christ. Because it's not like there's something that we did that made us acceptable in God's eyes. 
It's not like we only did some particular brand of sin, and so we were really, we were pretty much already there. And then Christ just kind of came in and did a little finish-up job, just put a bow on what we were already doing. The scriptures describe us as hating God. That's why I love John 3.16. When you keep reading through to John 3.19, it says that in our natural state, we love the darkness more than the light. It's how it describes people. And we want to be so quick to go to Sodom. We want to be so quick to go to any single character in scriptures and say, now that was a bad person. What did Jesus say when they told him that he was good? Oh, good teacher. He said, don't call me good. There's none good but my Father in heaven. Um, Now, if that's Jesus, I'm going to submit to you that you're much lower on that list than him. None is good. No, not one. That's the math problem. None seeks after God. No, not one. There is none of us that is born sprinting towards God saying, you know what? I think what I need is to be redeemed, redeemed from my original sin in Adam. And I think what I need is, is, is a third-party savior who has already paid through blood for the remission of sin, because that's the requirement for sin, is that God could only be appeased through blood. Um, and I would need a finished sacrifice so it doesn't need to happen all the time. This is not how we function. We're born sprinting out of the womb towards anything but God. Um, I forget who the guy is. Oh, Paul Washer. Paul Washer described that one time with a baby. And if you have a baby, you know exactly what I mean. Before you have one, you think they're cute and nice. When you have one, you know that's a little rage monster. That thing would scratch your eyes out and eat them if it could. I know because my buddy's baby scratched his cornea one time. If it saw this, the watch, Washer said, on, on your arm, and the baby wanted it, and if it was powerful enough, it would injure you greatly to get that watch. We have to teach people that we're not allowed to hurt. Maybe you've had that kid. Maybe you were that kid. No, no, buddy. We don't bite people to get what we want. You know, and then that little monster goes and bites somebody for like a Lego toy. It's innate in us, right? It's like the, the you ever see those commercials for the shingles vaccine? I, like I'm forever, I'm ruined by the shingles vaccine commercials. You know, it freaks me out. Because, you know, shingles makes you think your skin's on fire. Maybe you've had that. I know what's going to come to me because I'm terrified of it, right? They say, like, well, if you have had chicken pox, and I'm like, wait, I've had chicken pox. They say the shingles virus is already in you, and you're going to think your skin's on fire. They don't say the next part, but that's what I know is going to happen. That's a great description of sin. If you exist, sin is in you. We need Christ in us to overcome that. And so it's important to remember from this story of Lot that this is a great description of people. This is a great description of humanity. This is what happened when a whole civilization, a whole society does not pay attention to God and makes up for itself what it wants to be true. Ever seen one of those? You're living in one right now. It's like if there's something that God has said, all of society says, all right, well, what's on the opposite side of that? I want that. God made them male and female. Our society would say, I want 74 other categories on a drop-down menu. You ever seen a drop-down menu with 74 choices? It's insanity, and that's the world that we live in, because we're just like Sodom. 
We're exceedingly wicked. Anything but God, anything but righteousness, anything but holiness is what we desire as a society. It's what happens when you don't follow the light to your feet. When you don't look on the path with the light of the word, you start making up whatever in the world you want and everything looks insane when they're done. Nothing can stand. Logic falls completely apart. And we live in a world today where people don't, don't ask for a logical conclusion. They demand that you believe the insanity that they say is true based on nothing, based on wanting it to be true. And it's not okay that you see it differently. You must agree or you must be squashed. You must lose your job. You must lose your ability to make money. You must lose your place in society. You must agree with whatever people say is true, regardless of any proof for that truth. It's very much like Sodom. Exceedingly wicked, doing great sin against God. It describes our time and day fairly well. So we can know that this city is exceedingly wicked because the word told us in Genesis 13, 13. But also we'll see some evidence provided across scripture in a few places. If you would look uh, to Ezekiel chapter 16, you can write this down and look later. You can look now or it'll flash up on the screens. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 through 50 as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. That might not be what you thought was going to be the injunction against Sodom. You might have thought it was going to be something else. Everything stemmed from their lack of reverence for God. And what got them to a lack of reverence for God? Ease. Having much. We're in danger of that as believers in our day. We want for nothing. Nothing. Not the next meal. Not an object. We, we have so much exceeding wealth in this country. We want for nothing. And that puts us in danger. That puts us in danger of being completely placated. That puts us in danger of doing anything to protect the wealth that we have. Whatever that wealth is, whatever that comfort is, we will do a lot to protect our ability to have that. And I'm not removing myself from that. I'm saying I'm part of it along with you, but we have to be cautious and use the word like a lamp because of it. We have to be diligent. Our minds have to be sharp and attuned to the fact that we're in a dangerous place because we're comfortable. Christ gives the model prayer, taught us to pray, um, give us this day our daily bread. When was the last time you felt like you needed to ask God to provide food for you? But what richness would it bring to your soul when you recognize that he does? You think it's you, but it can all be gone like that. Imagine how easy your life is. Like, you don't even know how half of it works, right? Wake up in the morning, you put your hand on this little thing. You, you, you used to have to, like, spin it to unscrew to turn the water on. Now we're, like, we're to, like, an eighth or a quarter turn because we really, we can't work that hard for things. 
you know? So you got like, like a quarter turn, which is exhausting for you because you're completely atrophied and unfit. So you do the quarter turn, and you, a, you just got a half-inch source of perfectly clean drinking water coming at you, right? And what are you going to do? You're going to rub your teeth with it on a, on a stick with bristles and a special kind of a tooth-buffing compound just to get ready for the day so your breath doesn't smell. Remember, there are some things that are for you, and there are some things that are for other people. Soap, deodorant, toothpaste. Not for you. You should use it when you don't think you need to. That's for other people. Please indulge us. Imagine now that water source becomes tainted. Unfixably tainted. And I mean beyond, you know, what the chemical industry has done to your water. Uh, I mean, you can't drink it anymore or you're going to die. What's your next move, Mr. Comfort? Mr. I don't pray thanking God for my next daily meal. When that water source is tainted and you come and you turn on the little knob and you get fresh, clean water, you know how quickly things would come undone if our grocery stores couldn't provide us freshly packaged cattle and eggs? You, what do you think this society would turn into? You know all those people that you love and that you're friends with and you guys all hang out? What would that be like when they've got a little bit of food left in the refrigerator and you do not? We would do well to remember, as the scripture says, we're but dust. We're very pride-filled dust, self-reliant dust. We think we've got everything under control, but I assure you, you do not. It is only by God's grace that we have the many, many blessings that we do, and we would do well to be thankful for those. Sodom's problem was pride and excess of food and prosperous ease, and not caring for the needy. Sound familiar? There's a lesson here in Lot. So Lot brings these people in with greatest uh, hospitality. Scripture has a lot to say about hospitality, which is a bummer for me, because if you've been to my house, first of all, you haven't, because I'm not hospitable. But secondly, the, the, the inside of the front door says leave. And I have all kinds of alarms that go off at like 6.30 that say things like, it's time for you to go. But the scriptures talk a lot about hospitality. You're wondering if I'm serious. The book of Job, chapter 31, Job is kind of going, going through all the reasons he hasn't sinned greatly. He, he says in this list of things, I've opened my doors to travelers. There's this, this, this world was very hospitable. Opening your door to a traveler. Can you imagine opening your door to a traveler? Heck with that. I'm not letting somebody in my house that's just wandering around. I'll wake up in the bathtub full of ice with a note that says, call the ambulance. You are now down one kidney. Probably be Rick. Where are you? Stealing kidneys. What about 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10? Having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Are we hospitable believers? That's a question. I'm, but let me, let me encourage you in this because maybe you're feeling a little beat up. Maybe you're like, gosh, I'm not hospitable. Listen, I'm not either. But if you read the scriptures and you're constantly just affirmed by how great you are, you may want to read more deeply. So sometimes when it hits, so you say, you know, you know you shot a bird because you see the feathers in the air? 
My friend Phil Buckman doesn't know that experience because he just shoots and there's never feathers. Great guy to go bird hunting with, by the way. Take Phil with you. He won't shoot any birds. It's great. So you get even more for yourself. I say that because I'm picking on him. I know he's listening online. He is a terrible shot, though. We give him blanks. It's much safer. It was John's idea. We should be confronted by the word at times. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For the strangers in the land, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Well, that does it. <laughs> and also, I'm the Lord your God, and that's what I'm telling you to do. Check. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 2, commands not to neglect showing hospitality for strangers to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. And so maybe the, the angels here are testing Lot's hospitality, not sure. Um, we, we do know that if so, he did pass the test. He insists that they stay with him. If you remember the conversation between Abraham and God, um, asking, negotiating all the way down to a very few number of people, righteous folks in, in, in the city of Lot in Genesis 18 and 20. Continuing on in our study, verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called Lot. Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Trust me, you do not want to be known by these guys, fellas. This is, this is a terrible situation, and this is endemic of what the city is like. This is the pulse of the city. These guys want to come and, and rape these angel fellas that have shown up in town, and this is describing what it's like to live in Sodom. This is the place that Lot chose. This is the city where he said, you know what, I'm going to move in there. This is the city where he said, you know what, my daughters are, are going to assimilate in town. They're going to meet their future husbands. We're going to find out that they're betrothed to men in the city who are, by the way, all at Lot's house right now. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. So he places himself out of his home in the middle of danger. What a hero Lot we're about to see. Verse 7, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. What is wrong with this guy? And if you're, you know, if you're the daughters, you're thinking, wait, uh, say that again. This is a wild scene. Okay, this is some crazy stuff that's going on. And by the way, their betrothed husbands may be in the crowd somewhere going, well, hold on. I was here for the angel party. Um, didn't think my fiance was going to get shoved out the door by her father. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What a guy. Verse 9. But they said, stand back, as the angels. And they said... This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Praise the Lord. That was getting wild. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small 
and great so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You've got Lot is outside trying to deal with this wild situation. God allows it to go on for a period and then says, enough is enough. I've let enough of this play out. You know, everybody's going to be blind. Everybody's going to be blind and exhausted trying to feel their way to the entrance. I can only imagine what this must feel like to go from seeing just fine and feeling like you're in charge of this situation to now being blinded and exhausted by trying to find the door. It's like uh, I travel a lot and I always run through the same drill. I wake up in a new room and I orient myself on two things, the window to the outside and the bathroom. And as soon as now I can kind of figure out where I am again, right? These guys can't, they're completely blinded. They're, they have nothing. They can't find where they are. They know they've broken into someone's house. The situation's a little crazy. They have no idea in this moment why they cannot see. We get all this commentary, so we know. Verse 12, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone to have in this city to bring them out of this place? For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. Must have had the whole wake you up in the middle of the night, tell you God's going to destroy the city kind of vibe in their relationship. So they're kind of making fun of him. They're mocking him. He works to collect everybody. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest they be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city, and they brought them out and said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, <laughs> I don't feel like this is my reaction in this moment. We had the whole men of the city descending on my house. We had the whole negative moment where I tried to turn my daughters over. You guys made everybody blind. You said, God's going to destroy everything. Go get anyone you want to live past right now. And you're negotiating in verse 19 to go to the next city? Behold, if your servant has found favor in your sight, oh, it's been so much opportunity to have found favor. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest disaster overtake me and I die. God is so merciful because I would not be. Hold on. You're telling me you want to be able to escape to a, a suburban metropolitan area, not the woods? I am literally going to level this entire town. I'm trying to save you and the few people in your home who we're going to presume right now are righteous. Verse 20, behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was Zor. Lot's obedience is slow. Um, and maybe you've heard the phrase that slow obedience is no obedience. I struggle with Lot. 
But how much more could we struggle with ourselves? We, we went through some kind of challenging verses about considering our own walk, considering whether or not we're completely submitted to the will of God, considering whether or not we would sacrifice anything, any creature comfort, simply to know that we're obedient to God. It's a great question. It's the lot. That's the, the, the lesson of lot. Concentrating on and directing our affections. They need to be driven, not ridden. Our affections, we don't just gallop along. This is me galloping. And go to great places. We have to drive our direction. We have to determine what is the will of God, and we have to follow that path. We saw of Lot in chapter 13 and verse 10 that he looked on Sodom as a great choice. We saw him get near to Sodom in 11 and 12. We saw him move into Sodom in chapter 14. We saw him at the gate in chapter 19 and verse 1. We saw him with betrothed daughters in chapter 19 and verse 4. And we saw him willing to give those daughters to the men of the city in chapter 19 in verse 8, this results from playing with sin and kind of listing along with your affections and your youthful lusts and your laziness and your disinterest with the things of God. We would do well to consider that we have a more sure word, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. We are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We are not called to lone ranger Christendom. We're called to do it together along with others. It helps keep us in check and in balance. It helps bring glory and honor to God when people say, who are these weird people that you hang out with together? Well, let me tell you, there are a bunch of weird people that all know and love the same God that I do, and that's why we gather. You would never see this group of people at Cracker Barrel together. First of all, because Cracker Barrel is terrible and takes forever, but also because we just never would gather were it not for God, and that brings him glory and honor. Our Lord in Matthew 11 and verse 23, and I'll close here, said, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. I take that as encouragement to take on the lessons of Lot and the lessons of Sodom, to flee youthful passions, to pursue righteous faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord. Church, this week, take that on. Look at those passages and consider yourself before God. Where necessary, make changes. Where you're doing great, keep going. Never get complacent. Amen? Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for the truth of Hebrews chapter 7, which affirms that you were able to save to the uttermost those of us who draw near to you, God, through Christ, since Jesus himself lives to make an intercession for us. God, we thank you for that wonderful truth. I thank you for the, the truth of Christ's great sacrifice and ultimate death on the cross, that he would be the final payment, the remission for sin, the lamb on our behalf, spotless and without sin, able to give himself on our behalf. God, thank you for your gospel, which is truth. Thank you for your word, which transforms us, and thank you for your spirit, which indwells us and encourages us to grow and become transformed more and more into the image of your precious, holy, awesome son. And it's in his name we pray, amen.
to a police standard. 